I find the price for my microphone very high. Must I remain host, the secret producer of your royal show? You must. Will you try to force me into your podcast? I will. I'll record you every day of my life. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's... It's, a, it's a daily vlog podcast. <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> daily episodes. <laughs> the Golden Path demands it. Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We will be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we oh finish Children of Dune! Yes! <laughs> the whole of the book, the all of it, from the first page to the last, this is our deep dive read through. And uh, gosh, before we get into the insane chapters that we mm-hmm. uh, covered for today's episode, we got to make shout out Mapes Proud. Let's take care of our housekeeping so we can <laughs> dive into the insanity. That's right. That's right. So, as always, today's episode will be spoiler free for anything beyond the first three books. We have now done deep dive book club coverage of Dune, of Dune Messiah, and as of today, Children of Dune. So as long as you've read those three books, you're good to go for today. Indeed. Now, the best way to support us, as always, is to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. And hey, you're not just burning cash. You'll get benefits like ad-free episodes. Whoa. Bonus clips. (laughs) Yes. And bloopers where we Mm. make embarrassing mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, you do. Uh, Plus, you'll get an invite to our exclusive Discord server. Check it out. Great way to support us. And of course, we have to, every time, give a huge shout out to our Kwisatz Haderach level patrons, Case Aiken, Matthew Good. Uh. Fellas, we would hook you up with just the sweetest deal in the breeding program that we're going to establish. Just oh, yeah. whatever you want, no holds barred, just you're good. <laughs> We've got you. We want more of you. We, yeah. Yeah, we, we want more We Hadrick level patrons. And honestly, <laughs> this seems like the best way to do it. <laughs> right, right. Just keep, keep, you know, plug them into our breeding program. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You are Honestly, the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, another way to support us on this podcast is to check out our merch store at gomjabarshop.com. Yeah. If you head over there, you'll see some art, you'll see hoodies, t-shirts, tote bag, a mug, and so much more. All of it with gorgeous custom-designed Dune art. So go check it out at gomjabarshop.com. Get yourself some swag and support this show. Finally, we love to hear from you as you read along with us, and we just finished the book. So, hey, share your thoughts and email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. 
We have one more episode that's going to be focused on Children of Dune, and it's going to be a mailbag episode where we're going to answer your questions. So check the schedule in the show notes and make sure you send your email in time for us to include it in that mailbag episode. Don't miss out. That's right. That's right. And if you're hearing this on the public feed months after the patrons have already heard that episode, not to worry. Email us your question anyway, because we still do public mailbag episodes for all of our listeners. So don't hesitate. Comjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Hit send. It's true. All right. Let's talk about today's episode because we have to do it a little bit different. <laughs> I feel like this happens every time we finish one of these books. It does. <laughs> Basically, every chapter gets so dense and action-packed in the final uh-huh. <laughs> moments of Frank's books that we're just going to be focusing today on summarizing and analyzing the assigned reading because we realize trying to shove additional takeaways and morsels was going to cut into that time. For sure. And I would say summary is a bit of a misnomer. Like, (laughs) as usual, we couldn't help ourselves, and we are going deep on every single one of these final set of chapters in this book. So it should be a fun one today. Yeah, I actually just copy and pasted two of the full chapters into the script. So enjoy right. in its entirety, chapter 62. Our final transformation in audiobook. We will podcast for 4,000 years. Eventually, are just going to be audible. All right. With that out of the way, let's take a short break as we normally do. But don't go anywhere, folks, because it's time to finish this book. We'll see you in a minute. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, let's get into the rest of Children of Dune. This begins with Chapter 59. Now, we begin today's reading with Gurney Halleck sitting on a butte at Shulok, and he's reflecting on <laughs> just the wild series of events that have led him to this moment, to this reflective moment. Mm -hmm. Below him, in the valley, the cast-out are working furiously because they've come to see Leto as Shai Halud personified, who can blame them. Quote, (laughs) on and on he'd gone with his instructions, and the cast-out had heard every word, seeing him through fear-glazed eyes, through a terrifying awe. Here was Shai Halud, Come up from the sand at last. End quote. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Now, they are following his orders. The cast out are following Leto II's orders to prepare the Tenza roof to become his new home and to stockpile as much spice as possible. He's like, I like this desolate patch of desert. Make it mine. <laughs> it's mine now. Right. They're like, okay. Make it feel homey. Put up, put up one of those signs that's like... <laughs> Work, love, life. 
<laughs> live, 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 uh, actually, because oh, oh, I see. <laughs> for 4,000 years, in parentheses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Now I want to do, like, Dune-themed live, laugh, love. <laughs> like, yeah, holy so shit. I, that's oh, a great merch idea. <laughs> Write that one down. <laughs> Jot it down. Uh, <laughs> well, Gurney recalls how Leto found him in one of the kind of small rebel sieges and introduced him to the legendary preacher. Now, there is in this scene a real sense of kind of deja vu with their meeting in the first book, right? Like, this is the second time he's in a siege meeting Paul <laughs> after he believed Paul to be totally dead. He's like, Jesus, this keeps happening. Yeah. And it's funny because initially, Gurney is just hilariously dismissive of the preacher Literally interrupting him like, okay, sh shut up. Who invited you, you gross old man? Come on. Right. I'm trying to interrogate this child <laughs> and confirm he's not possessed. Right. Now, the preacher, in responding to him at one point, uses a bit of the voice. And Gurney recognizes this from his Bene Gesserit training that he received from Jessica during Dune Messiah. And the preacher explains that Leto has tamed his inner voices. Quote, this youth has achieved an inner cooperation which is enormously powerful, that cannot be subverted, end quote. Mm. Pretty incredible stuff. This leads to Gurney realizing the truth, that yes, the preacher is Paul Atreides, and they definitely dance around that for a couple of sentences, but in a passage that pays tribute to Gurney's training under Jessica, and the profundity of Leto's accomplishments, we get this little excerpt. And I, I loved this because I think this highlights kind of the measurable change in Leto beyond the, <laughs> the living skin that is not his own. <laughs> Quote, Halleck looked once more at Leto, really saw him. He saw the signs of stress around the eyes, <laughs> same, the sense of balance in the stance, the passive mouth with its quirking sense of humor. Leto stood out from his background as though the focus of a blinding light. He had achieved harmony simply by accepting it. End quote. Wow. Now, once Gurney has realized that he's talking to Paul, <laughs> Paul Atreides, he's confronted with an existential question. Quote, Who's being tested? The preacher asked. Is it perhaps... That the Lady Jessica tests you, Gurney Halleck? And oh, Gurney. shit. Gurney's like, I need six cigarettes and like 45 <laughs> minutes alone. I just need to... <laughs> so much. And Gurney's spiraling here makes me think that, you know, we kind of see Jessica not exactly brainwashing, but kind of brainwashing Farhanen. Uh He is no longer Carino. He is now Benny Gesserit. Mm -hmm. I imagine something similar could have happened with Gurney, right? He is no right. longer a Halleck. He is now a Bene Gesserit. And whatever that kind of looks like in the moment, the preacher's words, perfectly chosen, have kind of surgically sliced through his, his just compulsion to continue down this like Bene Gesserit line of questioning. And the preacher's words kind of shake Gurney's mentality because he he's seeing Leto and this situation around him 
through the eyes of the Bene Gesserit, right? Right. He's hell-bent on testing Leto for abomination because he thinks abomination is this ultimate, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he needs to see all the right signs because the Bene Gesserit have told him he needs to see all the right signs. This training from Jessica is so ingrained that his worldview is now Bene Gesserit. And I think that's what Paul is kind of getting at here. And by posing this question to Gurney, he's forcing Gurney to confront his worldview in that way and be like, oh, I can just see Leto Atreides for who he is now and not who the Bene Gesserit fear he may become. Yeah. Not to mention later in the book, Jessica's like, wow, there's two fucking ways of dodging abomination. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) The Bene Gesserit do not know as much as they claim to. This is good. I like this moment. And so all of that works. And realizing that he's next to Paul Atreides, he's understandably overcome with emotion. But Paul here is more resigned. Paul's been through a lot, to be fair. Quote, the preacher's side. To the sisterhood, all of it, I am dead. Do not try to revive me. End quote. Ooh. Yeah. Paul, throughout this, is very like, I am not Paul Atreides. I am not Muad'Dib. I am just the preacher. Defer to my child. (laughs) If you have any questions about the future, uh, I am just the preacher. Right. Now, the room is like filling with Fremen as they're like, oh my God, is that a literal God talking to another literal God talking to <laughs> Gurney motherfucking Halleck, the man who fucks? And they are pressing in toward Paul because here he is, the Messiah, the Lisan al Gaib, the, you know, Muadib Usul. There he's right there. <laughs> and yeah. they are kind of ignoring Leto, but they're getting closer and closer to Paul. Leto springs into action, shoving them aside, like flinging these fully grown men aside <laughs> as his father is basically deflecting their questions. Quote, in less than a minute, those Fremen still standing were pressed back against the walls in silent consternation. Leto stood beside his father. When Shai Halud speaks, you obey, Leto said. End quote. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Uh, really knows how to play in the bravura, doesn't he? Yeah. And also, I think a physical example of how Leto is taking the reins, right? Yeah, like these Fremen yeah. are pressing in toward Paul. And the way Frank chooses his wording here is very explicit. He says the Fremen are pushing towards Paul and ignoring Leto and Gurney, pushing them off to the side as they press toward their messiah. That is what forces Leto's hand here almost. He needs to jump in and take control of what we know is the future of all humanity, but also take control of this situation and acknowledge that he is Shai Halud now. He is who they will be following. This man is simply just the preacher. He is no longer the Messiah that they have worshipped for decades now. That's such a good point. Yeah, I think it's just a physical manifestation of sort of the prescient level events taking place, if that makes sense. Or at least that's how I interpreted this scene is Leto is now sitting in the driver's seat of the Honda (laughs) and telling the Fremen to get in the back seat because he's the one driving now. He is the captain now. (laughs) 
It's like God makes bar so reference. many metaphors <laughs> so there. Many <laughs> I'll also point out we're told in this section that Leto was quote wrenching knives from their hands end quote, <laughs> and it's not clear if they took knives out of their sheaths because Leto was throwing them around, or if some of them pressing toward Paul simply had knives in their hands. And either way, this really highlights how close to violence the moment was. And I see, like, validating some of Gurney's anxiety around the Mm -hmm. room. Because Gurney's like, oh, my God, this is a problem. Like, people are getting really amped up with the idea that this might be Paul. Leto putting an end to all of that is also literally disarming Fremen, just grabbing Chris knives by their blades. Well, this... Anxiety-inducing meeting and the chapter comes to an end as Gurney is back on the Butte, reflecting on basically how Faradin is part of Leto's plan. But he also acknowledges he doesn't know what the plan is. <laughs> Gurney is here, but he's kind of here, as you said. He's in the backseat of the Honda. Leto's, you know, pulling donuts in the parking lot, and he's like, one day, this is all going to make sense. But right now... <laughs> I'm just along for the ride. Yeah. And knowing what we know later on in these chapters, I suspect Leto is keeping Gurney in the dark on purpose because he intends for Gurney to survive the events that will take place in the coming days and in the coming weeks. If Gurney knew Paul was going to Arakeen, you can bet your ass he'd want to go, right, to protect Paul Atreides to do his duty as an Atreides servant. Right. I get the sense that Leto... And Paul, on Leto's orders, is basically keeping Gurney completely in the dark to protect him from the events to come. Yeah, if Gurney heard that, he'd be like, no, 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 no. Wait one second, guys. (laughs) Get back to the back seat, sir. All right? Right. Not done with my donuts yet. All right, let's talk about chapter 60. This is a short one, but a very intense one. We joined Ganema as she is listening in on the meeting between Stilgar and Buer Agarvis in this abandoned Jadida village. And we're told that the meeting has been dragging on for more than the scheduled hour, much like all of my own fucking work meetings. And Ganema is very suspicious of what's taking place. She basically doesn't trust a word that Buer is saying. This also seems to be a pattern with Stilgar, my guy can't hold a timely meeting, right? Like, this is the second chapter we're coming in, <laughs> and it's like, Stilgar's in a meeting. It's going really long. <laughs> yep, he's that manager. You know, he's the one that puts a 30-minute meeting on your calendar, and you're like, fuck, let me set aside my whole afternoon for this. <laughs> he, that's really how he rose to be a name. Is to, he just right. scheduled meetings with anybody who wanted to <laughs> knife fight him and, and just outlasted them stamina-wise. <laughs> yep, yep. What a flex, Stilgar. You love to see it. So how are these negotiations going between Stilgar and Buer? In short, not great. Buer is basically promising Stilgar and the refugees a full pardon from Alia if they choose to return. But everyone is super skeptic. Yeah. Like, no one really believes that that is Alia's true intentions, right? She might give the pardon, but there's going to be a catch. There's going to be more going on, plans within plans. Right. Interestingly, St- 
Stogar is also feeling, quote, uncomfortable with this suggestion that he returned to his old status, end quote. And that line really stuck out to me because we talked at length in our last book club about how Stilgar is reconnecting with his old ways, with the old Fremen ways of traveling in the desert. He's no longer stuck in the bureaucracy of Atreides' government and with the responsibility of all this ruling and imperial nonsense. He's kind of like, I don't know that I want to go back to that life. I like being a refugee. He's thriving out here, as we discussed in our last book club. Right. Where then spells out the deal more clearly. He, he's like, okay, let me be very explicit about this. Stilgar, you will be given back siege to Burr. You will retain your name's status. And this seems like the sweetest part of the deal to me. You will be allowed complete neutrality. Ganema senses that this is tempting. And to be fair... I, too, in Stilgar's shoes would be like, damn, that's a good deal. Right. Like, that's almost everything that I want, you know, because he, what he really wants deep down, I, I get the sense that Stilgar wants to go back to the life he lived, like, pre-meeting Paul Atreides when he was yeah. just the knave of yeah. this one siege in the desert. Right. Ganema's like, oh, fuck, Stilgar's tempted by this. And even Stilgar's like, okay, okay, I hear you. But let's be clear, I'm not going to give Alia any of my fighting men, and I will never pay allegiance to her, right? I will never again work for Alia Atreides. I will be committing to that neutrality. Right. And this, <laughs> this is where our poor guy Buer slips up because he reveals, yeah, cool. Yeah, whatever, Stilgar, whatever you want, that's fine. All Alia is interested in is getting Ganema back so that this planned betrothal to Faradin can continue. Right. And this is a huge red flag for Stilgar. He is resistant to this idea because I imagine he's not ready to give up a child of Muad'Dib, right? He sees right. himself yeah. as their protector. Think back all the way to the first chapter. Yeah, Leto too was like, you have one job. <laughs> Take care of <laughs> right. her. And now this like suspicious, murderous woman is like, Give me her. <laughs> it's like, mm, well, mm. totally big red flag. And this kind of is a wake up call for Stilgar in these negotiations. Unfortunately, before we find out how Stilgar responds or how these negotiations continue, Ganema is suddenly and stealthily grabbed from behind and finds a rag placed to her mouth. Quote, as consciousness faded. She felt herself being carried toward a door in the hall's darkest reaches, and she thought, I should have guessed. I should have been prepared. But the hands that held her were adult and strong. She could not squirm away from them. End quote. And as Ganema loses consciousness, we wrap up this chapter. Plans within plans, folks! And I'm sure the meeting continued for another six hours after that. <laughs> because Stilgar's Stilgar had it. his way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Minimum six more hours. God, Stilgar, <laughs> time management. <laughs> it's a competency. <laughs> Practice it. Well, that carries us into chapter 61, which is another shorter chapter. And we join Leto as he's looking out over the desert, thinking some hashtag deep thoughts. <laughs> we are told once more that Leto continues to become less and less human. The cilia in his flesh 
creeping in. He talks about them <laughs> like literally they're touching his organs now. They're becoming less human. Uh, Things yep. are in his blood. It's just so much. The sense of loneliness in this little section is intense. Quote, I could just walk away into that desert, he thought. Everything would change then. End quote. And we know that Atreides don't really do this. Paul kind of did it, but he, he gave it a good run before he walked into the desert. Totally. But Leto can't. We know that he can't because of the influence of his father and his aunt on the Fremen and Arrakis and the Imperium at large. Quote, Kralizek, the typhoon's struggle lay ahead. But Kralizek, or worse, would be the price of a misstep. End quote. Oof. Now the preacher arrives with a child guide who Leto's like, get the fuck out of here, kid. <laughs> and Leto informs his father that Faradin has arrived on Arrakis... Ooh. And that he plans to head into Arakeen. All right. Uh, good luck, Faradin. <laughs> and Leto's trip into Arakeen is a major decision nexus, as both father and son are aware. Quote, The preacher cleared his throat. The tensions told him how near they were to the shattering crisis. Now Leto would not be relying on pure vision, but on vision management, end quote. <laughs> what a Kwisatz Haderach sentence, by the way. Yeah, what a like. Real. Oh, he's shifting into like fourth gear. We as the readers are like, <laughs> there are gears? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Nevertheless, Leto's like, Paul, I want you to come with me and preach once more to the people of Arakeen. Paul says something kind of funny. He's like, uh, there are things I haven't said yet that I'd like to say. Right. <laughs> He's like, I have some drafting. Like bitches get money is one I forgot to mention <laughs> on the last one. <laughs> it's in his drafted tweets. <laughs> well, Paul is hesitant, despite the fact that he's got like 16 drafted tweets that he's ready to hit send on. But Leto's not going to force him. Paul can stay with Gurney if he wants. Can stay out here in the desert with Gurney. Hang out here. It's fine. Have a great time. And it seems like either, one, Paul's prescience isn't necessary for the visions Leto has seen, like, it's fine if he's not there. Or, two, Leto knows that Paul has to be there, but the way to get him to go there is to not be pushy about it, right? Mm -hmm. There's even a moment where Leto is wondering if his father has dipped into prescience again, but we're given confirmation that Paul has finally given up that kind of habit. Quote, he'd never go that way again. He knew the trap of a partial commitment. The preacher's every word confirmed that he had handed over the visions to his son, knowing that everything in this universe had been anticipated. End quote. Again, these quiet affirmations of Leto's power and his control yeah. in the situation. Right. And... The chapter ends as Paul basically agrees to go, and we get some dark foreshadowing that not everyone is going to survive this trip into the city. <laughs> Much like a lot of people's experience with New York City. <laughs> Me and my six best friends are going to go to New York. Four of us are going to come back. It's going to be great. <laughs> Rip Jimmy. <laughs> we don't, yeah, 
I was going to say we don't talk about Jimmy, but honestly, we should keep his memory alive. <laughs> Poor bastard. <laughs> he got too close to a pizza rat. <laughs> I appreciate this moment because even when Paul asks, quote, Gurney's not going with us, end quote, Leto replies with the uh, kind of heartbreaking but beautiful and kind of sweet, quote, I want Gurney to survive, <laughs> end quote. Yeah, yeah. Really, like, I mean, beyond making it clear, because Leto says in this chapter, like, if you go, you're not going to return to the desert. Mm-hmm. But this idea that Paul very validly is like, oh, is Gurney not part of the vision? And Leto responds more poignantly with, whether or not he could be of some assistance, I want him to survive. Like, Leto is so clearly willing to risk everything for the golden path. This chapter starts yeah. with him being like, yeah, my pancreas is like 40% sandworm now. That's fine. <laughs> but unnecessary loss of life. Or Gurney Halleck, this like incredibly important person to House Atreides. Do I risk his life? No, I'd rather not. And it really humanized, as much as he keeps saying he's not human anymore, uh, it really humanized some of Leto's kind of inner thoughts here for me. For sure. That's such a great point, is that he is making a choice here, right? He's not letting the visions decide. He's not letting his vision management technique decide Gurney's fate. This is a personal choice from Leto Atreides himself to keep his friend alive no matter what. Right. Yeah, very poignant. All right, let's do it. Chapter 62. <laughs> this is the one. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so in this chapter, we join Alia as she is looking down on the Temple Plaza. There is a big old pilgrim party taking place down there <laughs> uh-huh. in her honor. Uh-huh. And there are plenty of Araki natives among the throng, too. So it's a nice mix of pilgrims and natives. Right. We're told that there is a group of Ixian women who have dedicated their dance to Alia, the womb of heaven, and are dressed in revealing evocative clothing. Can't wait to see this on film. <laughs> Alia, <laughs> Alia notes that this is actually part of her plan as well, because sexual equality was a part of Fremen culture out in the desert. And here, in the comforts of the city, social differences in sexual identity are starting to emerge, right? And the goal for Alia is to, quote, divide and weaken, end quote. Right. That's like Alia's campaign slogan for emperor. (laughs) I promise to divide and weaken you all. Everyone's like, what? (laughs) Shit, he's got my vote. (laughs) Hell, I'll vote twice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ricky, you can't do that. What? Why not? <laughs> I got twice the passion you bootlickers have. <laughs> one vote for divide and one vote for weekend. <laughs> I thought I'd vote for the number of words I liked. <laughs> <laughs> what is this bit? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's coastal elitism oh, is what it is. Yeah, true coastal elitism. We're sorry to any of our listeners who have a southern accent. That's terrible. <laughs> My parents live in Arkansas. I have a pass. <laughs> no, I don't. All right. 
<laughs> back to the chapter. Back to the chapter. Divide and weaken. There's a dance happening in the Temple Plaza. Yeah. We learn through Alia's thoughts that quite a bit has happened since Ganima's abduction two chapters ago. Right. Almost certainly incensed by said abduction of Ganima, Stilgar has killed Buer Agarvis, who apparently had no idea that the abduction was part of the plan. He was kept completely out of the loop. The kidnappers actually followed him through a secret transmitter in his boots to the location of Stilgar's refugees. Right. So Alia <laughs> simply used Buer as a tool, a means to an end here. Fucking tough look all around. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's not forget she also fucked him. <laughs> so yeah. <it's> like, <laughs> yeah, used him twice. Poor guy. Now, we also learned that Stilgar and Irulan have been arrested and thrown in the temple dungeons, but for the time being, they are alive and well. We'll see how long that lasts. Alia's like, they may be useful. I'll keep them around for now. And finally, we also learned that Faradin is expected at any moment. He has arrived on Arrakis, and this fateful meeting with Ganema is poised to take place. Right. It's about to go down. All of this is then interrupted by the arrival of the preacher in the Temple Plaza. The preacher's arrival has thrown Alia into overdrive. She and the Baron had a plan for how today would go, and now they have to adjust. The preacher suddenly arriving and giving a grand speech was not part of the plan. Because also, he's been absent for a while. Like, it's yeah. been a long time since he's been speaking in Arakeen. So, in addition to just, he always <laughs> shakes the boat a bit, I also get the impression, yeah, like, it's been months. And here he is yeah. dropping a surprise EP, and everyone's going fucking <laughs> wild. Yeah, Baron and Alia are scrambling. Totally. Great point. Now, in the room with Alia, her Amazon guard, Zaya, arrives and informs her that Faradin is outside requesting an immediate audience. And the problem here, of course, is that everyone knows he's been trained by the Bene Gesserit, and his true goal is not to like come in and exchange pleasantries with Alia. It's to come in and watch the preacher and more importantly, watch Alia's reaction to the preacher to see what information he can glean from that. Yeah, it's funny because he keeps saying like, wow, I've heard so much about this preacher fella. I want to see him. He fucking met him. Like one-on-one -on -one <laughs> yes. dream <Yes>. interpreter <laughs> with the Ixian mask. He's met this dude, does not mention it. Does not mention the fact that he's like, I like you. I want you to stay here forever. And Preacher's like, nah, bye, dude. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think that's simply because he wouldn't want Alia to know that. Yeah, he wants course. to see what yeah. her raw reaction to the situation is here. Right. But it's a great point. It's a great reminder that he has actually met this dude one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> Not the first time Radan is seeing the Preacher. <laughs> yeah. Now, Alia decides to call it audible here, right? Things are changing. The plan has to be adjusted. Let's adapt to the new circumstances. So the new plan is to allow Faradin and Jessica into the room and then bring in Ganema and the preacher on her signal. Quote, Alia turned away to peer out the window. In just a few minutes, the plan would bear its bloody fruit, and Paul would be here when his daughter delivered the coup de grace 
to his holy pretensions. End quote. Mm. So let's talk about this sermon, because the preacher is here down on the steps of the temple giving his final sermon. And our guy is not holding back, folks. He is effectively inciting this crowd into a frenzy. Right. He's riling up the native Fremen who are among the crowd against the pilgrims and the off-worlders like those Ixian dancers. Here's just a taste of the bars that our guy is spinning. Quote, Wild beasts lie upon your lands, the preacher said, his voice booming across the plaza. Doleful creatures fill your houses. You who fled your homes no longer multiply your days upon the sand. Yea, you who have forsaken our ways, you will die in a fouled nest if you continue on this path. End quote. So dope. Harsh words. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, though. Especially because, like, this is, we clearly know that a number of Fremen feel this. And for him to then just say it so clearly to this group that it's like, it's a mixed audience. Like, you know that people are here like, oh, I'm so excited to hear. I've heard so much about him. And then he's like, fuck you in particular. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> I think he doesn't like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he doesn't. And he's not afraid to tell you. <laughs> it's he's not afraid great. to tell you. Now, in an iconic flourish that is worthy of his drama degree, the preacher ends the sermon by turning around and pointing directly up at Alia in her window and screaming, <laughs> quote, One blasphemy remains! Blasphemy! And the name of that blasphemy is Alia! <laughs> End quote. Except oh, shit. everyone drops to silence. <laughs> I know. It's such a shocking moment. You would think the crowd would go wild, but instead yeah. what happens is just utter silence washes over the plaza. Everyone is standing frozen in place. Right. Except yep. those priests that were sent down to collect the preacher. Him pointing at Alia, calling her blasphemy is too much for them to stand. They storm forward with angry shouts and grab the preacher, and that's it. That is the straw that breaks the camel's back. The dam has opened up, and this pent-up energy that the preacher has been cultivating these past few minutes unleashes. The people swarm the temple steps. All hell breaks loose, and Alia sees this fateful moment all play out from her window, from her vantage point. Quote, then a yellow-clad arm arose from the press of people. A crisp knife was brandished in its hand. She saw the knife strike downward, bury itself in the preacher's chest. End quote. Huh. Paul? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's funny because we had this sort of foreshadowed by Alia, first of all, like many chapters ago, telling her priests do not harm him and them leaving and Baron going, that was well played. Some of them still believe you want him dead and her going, no, 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 I don't no, I don't want that. And he's like, yeah, but they think that. So even here, when she tells them, go down and grab him, like, like, look at me, do not hurt him. Do not use force. 
bring him here unharmed. She says all of that very clearly, but we know that some of them are reading into her words going, okay, I get you. She's like, stop winking. No, no winking. <laughs> unharmed. And they're like, okay, I get you. She's like, no. I hear you. No, no, no. no. Unharmed. They're like, okay. Harmed. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's it's fascinating because we see all of this build up knowing that this is going to then be the thing. This is Chekhov's <laughs> golden clad priests, right? Yep. Yep. So continuing with the scene, much like the reader, Alia is stunned at what just took place in the plaza. And she turns to Jessica, her mother, who's in the room. And screams at her that her son is dead. Your son is dead, woman. Why aren't you reacting? And Jessica's reaction sort of unravels over the next few paragraphs because it dawns on her what just took place. Right. At first, she's stunned. And we get a sense of how deeply she is feeling the loss of her son. Quote, Jessica stood rooted for a long moment thinking she had just been told something already known to her. Faradin's hand upon her arm shattered the moment. My lady, he said, and there was such compassion in his voice that Jessica thought she might die of it right there. End quote. Uh, I, okay, honestly, maybe one of my favorite lines from this chapter, for Lady Jessica of the Bene Gesserit to think about these things with such hyperbole or like such apparent hyperbole that she might die of his compassion because it's so sweet and so needed in that moment. Like it feels like hyperbole because no, she's not going to literally die from his kindness, but she's a Benny Gesserit. I'm like, it's so, we don't get a lot of, she felt destroyed and she felt sad. Like we don't get a lot of that, yeah. but we're seeing it in the way that she's reacting to these moments as they play out. Like, that little sentence is just so beautiful to me. Totally. It's a truly heartbreaking moment. And despite everything, we need to recognize that right now, this is a mother recognizing the death of her son. Yeah. Ugh. And it's washing over her in waves. And it's almost too much to bear. Right. But that doesn't mean events have paused. <laughs> no. Because shit kicks into high gear, basically. While Jessica is processing all of this, Alia frantically orders her guards to bring Ganima in. The plan has to continue. Bring her in. Bring her in. Let's just do this. Let's just do it. You can tell she's very panicked at this point. Meanwhile, I'm thinking Alia could do great in theater. You know, she's like, <laughs> shit's going crazy. The chandelier almost came off the ceiling, but the yeah. show must go on. Literally. Get the next actor in here. We gotta get to scene three. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, if I'm gonna put a production on, I kind of want Alia Baron in charge. <laughs> no one's gonna be happy, but the show's getting done. Like, guaranteed. Yeah. And it <laughs> will be memorable at the very least. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So this is where our stage production flies off the fucking <laughs> handles. Yeah. Much like the plasteel door. Hey, true. Leto tears down this door to the room and arrives on the scene with his sister Ganima. He introduces himself in like very like MCU Marvelish fashion. It's kind of funny. He's just like, I am Leto Atreides, yeah. the lion of blah, 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 blah. 
And within this introduction, he's sure to say the trigger words that will break Ganema's deep hypnosis, which, of course, will allow her to remember the events that took place and will allow her to remember the plan that the twins agreed upon at the start of the book. So back in the room, Alia panics. She orders her guards to seize the twins, but that doesn't go well. Leto quickly dispatches with the guards by using this half-ton impregnable door as a weapon, <laughs> yeah. an absolute flex of his powers. And then he starts to walk towards Alia, dropping an epic one-liner to his sister. Quote, wait for me here, sister. I have a disagreeable task to perform. End quote. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so cinematic. I love it. So cinematic. Uh, I want this scene on film so badly. The task itself is, in fact, disagreeable. Leto confronts his aunt and easily overcomes her attempts to attack him with her knife. And you added a really poignant detail to our script here that I had completely missed. The knife that she's using here is described as being decorated. Quote, the green jewels of its handle flashed in the light from the window, end quote. Yeah. And notably, not a Chris knife. She's not using a Chris knife here in this confrontation with Leto. Yeah, it's like this tiny detail, but what a barren thing to have. Like a jewel-encrusted yeah. knife, right? The man who always had jewel rings and everything had to be pretty and, you know, precious. The fact that Alia... A fucking Fremen, who I'm sure has had a number of Chris knives over her life, is using like a decorated, flashy knife? <laughs> what? Right. But just another great little moment of, uh, of character demonstration. Like this is no longer Alia. Alia is not even present. Totally. Such a great note. I'm really glad you caught that small detail. Now, Chris knife or no knife... Leto wins this fight easily, and it's shocking how easily when you recall that Alia herself is an extremely capable fighter. Think back to Dune Messiah, where Paul walks in on her pushing the training dummy to levels that most people never achieve. Right, yeah, yeah. The only person to have achieved that level is Paul himself, <laughs> and Alia's out here training on this dummy and surviving. So we know she's a very capable fighter. And here, Leto just like brushes her aside with ease. Again, just an example of how powerful he has truly become. And to really, <laughs> to really hit that home, in an almost cartoonish display of his strength, he grabs his aunt <laughs> and swings her around his head over and over as she is screaming with terror. Yeah. It is such a weird visual, but it's so shocking. It's like imagine so being the people in the room. It's so Looney Tunes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like some shit you'd see Bugs Bunny do, and he's just grabbing his eye. It's like Tom and Jerry after Jerry has the like muscle milk or whatever, and then becomes like buff <laughs> little mouse. There's a different character, yeah. a different mouse that's like buff, and he likes literally does this <laughs> to, to Tom. What I'm saying is Tom and Jerry is clearly an adaptation of Children of Dune. <laughs> yes, of course. Yep, 
if you go back and watch all of Tom and Jerry, it you all see makes the parallels. Sense. You have to watch all of it, though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's such a like jaw drop moment for so many reasons. But it's also terrifying. I mean, imagine her screaming as she's whirled around the room again and again by this, you know, nine, ten-year-old boy. Now, once she's subdued, Leto extends one final olive branch to Alia. He offers to help her conquer those inner lives like he and Ganima have now successfully done. Right. And Alia's reaction is truly just terrifying stuff. Quote, No. The word was wrenched from Alia. Her chest heaved and voices began to pour from her mouth. They were disconnected, cursing, pleading. You see? Why didn't you listen? And again, Why are you doing this? What's happening? And another voice, Stop them! Make them stop! End quote. Ugh. What a visual that is. Yeah. It's really, this is where, like, the first time I read this, I was like, wow, Leto's like a superhero. This is so much fun. What a great action chapter. But upon, like, subsequent rereads, this is so scary <laughs> and, like, yeah. horrible. And even Jessica, now, I think at this point, she's, like, fully weeping, just unable to, like, comprehend what she's seeing because this is validation of the worst stories the Benny Gesserit have about abomination. Like yeah. this is this is like the boogeyman. This is the you know in the dark of night will grab you if you're not a good kid. This is the worst horrible story happening in front of her to her daughter. Yep. It's a horror movie come to life. Now the horror scene continues because Alia continues to just scream out nonsense and Various words as all her inner voices are speaking at once. So Leto moves to the window and shatters it, which at first seems like a weird thing for him to do. But again, <laughs> on subsequent window. rereads, <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, okay, he's setting the stage for his visions to play out, right? He's doing that vision management. Jessica, as you stated, is in tears as all of this is taking place. She is now openly weeping. And Alia turns toward her mother in this moment and begins to plead with her. With a, quote, sweet and lilting voice of the youthful Alia who was no more. End quote. Uh, it's so scary. Are you kidding it's me? fucking terrifying. <laughs> and what makes it scarier is, to me at least, it's clear that this is not Alia speaking. This no, is of the course. Yeah. Baron using Alia's voice to try and manipulate Jessica in the room, right? It's a last-ditch effort from the Baron. Ugh, the like, because everyone in the room, Baron knows that they pity Alia. So for him to lean into this, like, sweet, young, like, please, why is this happening? I'm so scared. None of you are helping me. It's yeah. so oh my God. fucking horrifying. Like, oh, and then, of course, Jessica's just, like, frozen in place. It's, oh, it's so bad. It's horrifying stuff. Ugh. It gives me goosebumps just, yeah. like, yeah. reading it and imagining it. it, it it's terrifying. The terrifying more, stuff. The more clearly I imagined all of this, the more I hated it. <laughs> in, yeah. In the, in the best way. <laughs> like, in the way of, like, this is a good horror-like movie. Yep. 
Oh, gosh. It's, it's all supposed to be deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. And much like Jessica, I too was frozen in place reading this chapter. She is unable to respond to any of the events around her. Leto's like, I'll leave it up to you, Jessica. It's your daughter. Should we do the trial of possession? And she just doesn't respond. Right. She's incapable of responding to events around her. So Leto, once again, takes the reins. He turns to his aunt and he gives her an ultimatum. Accept undergoing the trial of possession or end it all right now. Right. And he kind of nods toward that open window that he shattered. The Baron makes one last futile effort to manipulate Jessica. He once again uses Alia's voice. He's like begging his quote-unquote mother to help. Right. But then you almost get the sense that Alia forces or wrenches control of her body again and starts stumbling toward the window. Yeah. Fighting the Baron's panic. Like the Baron is like yelling out loud at this point, stop, stop, I can say you have a plan, stop this, blah, blah, blah. And Alia is just like, nope, one step, next step, next step, sort of fighting toward this window. He even pulls the trick again where he like gives her a terrible migraine, right? The the, the pain yeah. that could sent her like screaming through the hallways. Yes. And it doesn't stop her. Hell yeah, Alia. Hell yeah. Yeah. He's really pulling out all the stops here because, of course, the Baron doesn't want to die again. Right. And Alia is just battling to regain control. And in the end, it does appear that Alia wrenches back control in her final moments because she pushes herself over the ledge of this window and falls to her tragic death. In complete silence, the Baron is no longer screaming. Quote, Don't do this. Stop it, and I'll help you. I have a plan. Listen to me. Stop it, I say. Wait! But Alia pulled her hands away from her head, clutched the broken casement. In one jerking motion, she pulled herself over the sill and was gone. Not even a screech came from her as she fell. End quote. Now, the chapter wraps up. As Leto turns toward his grandmother and says, quote, we told you to pity her, end quote. Which, not the most comforting thing to say to a weeping mother in the moment, but he's not wrong. Yeah, because I, okay, wait, I have this to say about this and also later with Stilgar. I uh -huh. multiple times had sympathy for like, wow, Jesus, Leto, fucking come on, dude. Like, do you see what just happened to jessica yeah but this is after a fucking whole book of jessica forcing leto into like drug trances and ignoring his warnings like ignoring the Great shit he and ganima they're like ganima and leto are like listen jessica this is what you need to do and jessica's like are you possessed by ghosts and they're like yeah come on jessica please <laughs> and she's like no nah, i think you're ghosts i think you're both ghosts it's so, like, I I felt bad reading that. Like, I told you, we told you to pity her is such a cold thing to say to her. But oh, yeah. fucking Jessica is such a big part of this. And it's Stilgar, too. Like, they, they, miss, they, they misstepped so many times. So much of this lays on them. I'm like, there is a, a degree of catharsis. If I think about it that way, I'm like, oh, yes. Tell her, Leto. Let yeah. her really feel how much she was a part of what just happened. 
like let her really understand it viscerally because otherwise she's just, I don't know. No one should have to suffer the way she's suffering, but God darn it. The, the darker impulses are like, yeah, let's, let's have some, um, some payback for all the shit she just ignored this whole time. Ah, that's such a good point, Leo. I hadn't even considered it through that lens. Wow, great point, great point. So let's wrap up this amazing chapter. We basically end on Jessica, who has now witnessed the brutal deaths of both of her children and is realizing the direct and indirect roles that she has played in both of those deaths. She crumbles and buries her face in Faradhan's tunic as this chapter comes to a close. That's the last moment that we end on. What a chapter. What a climax to a book. We have been building up to chapter 62. And wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I don't know about (laughs) y'all, but I need a second to process chapter 62. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, we're going to be back with chapter 63, the penultimate chapter of this fantastic book. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you've had a nice breather after that stunning chapter. Let's finish off this book. We have two more chapters to go to complete Children of Dune. Right. Next up, chapter 63. Chapter 63. We join Ganima, Faradin, Tykenik, and Jessica waiting outside the audience chamber in the keep talking about Leto (laughs) 2. What a cast of people. What a group of people. Very strange. Truly. Now, it's been a week since the tragic events of Paul and Alia's deaths. So we're seven days later. And Leto II has assumed the Golden Lion Throne. He is now Emperor of the Universe. How old is he? Don't fucking worry about it. He's a, he's a worm. <laughs> he's a worm now. Right. Ganima is explaining to Faradin the sacrifice her brother has made. And, she, you know, there's this great passage where she's saying, Have you seen him running at night? Because I've seen him. He's this blur out on the desert expending energy because his metabolism's all over the fucking place. He's having a crazy time. And then he like comes back to her panting, lays his head on her lap and says, please find a way for me to die. Yeah. (laughs) I want to die. Please kill me. She's like, he's going through a lot. Faradin, meanwhile, is like, when do we take off his weird still suit? She's like, no, no, you don't understand. My brother has sacrificed his humanity. The still suit is part of him. And he's going to be in charge, he estimates, for about 4,000 years. 4,000 years until the metamorphosis that he's going through destroys him. Whatever that means. We don't really get a sense of, like, does he die but the worm lives? Or, like, I don't know. It's unclear what that means, but about 4,000 years. And Faradin's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> An emperor for 4,000 years? Right. I mean, to put that in context, 
imagine if tomorrow the U.S. government was like, Joe Biden <laughs> will be ruling for the next 4,000 years. <laughs> you would not be as calm as Faradhan is in this moment. Especially with the TikToks of like inspirational speeches from him where he goes, <laughs> if you just remember that you, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 4,000 years of that! <laughs> glorious. What a glorious 4,000 years that would be. Just kidding. Sarcasm. Yeah, that would be a lesson for humanity. It'd be a lesson we'd never forget. No fucking kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, yeah. 4,000 years is a long fucking time. Even in the Galactic Empire, because we're talking like House Atreides hadn't even been given planet Caladan yet 4,000 mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. So, like, it's a long fucking time. Yeah. Now, it is worth acknowledging the Bene Gesserit were the first long-term planners of the human species, right? Like they, coming off of old Terra, were the first organization to say, what could we accomplish through intentional genetic mixing in 50 generations or 60 generations? Yeah. And that was the power of the Bene Gesserit breeding program. Like that was the incredible power that they wielded. And Leto's like, cool, I'm going to oversee personally the whole time. Because I think Leto refers to himself or is referred to as the first truly long-term, like, planner. Yeah. And Ganema seems kind of gung-ho about all this. <laughs> like, she affectionately grabs Faradin's arm. Apparently, Faradin's a good-looking guy. But Faradin's response is awkward and hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, well, you're a little young yet, Faradin said, disengaging his arm. End quote. <laughs> And she, of course, is like, don't fucking make that mistake again, child, you know, because right, she's right. older than time itself. But you do have to continue to remember this, like, dichotomy of we know she's not a child, but she is still, like, 10 or 11. And she's like, we're going to have so many kids. Frodden's like, this is so much to process. <laughs> what a different life yeah. I'm getting <laughs> than the one I thought. <laughs> and at this point, Tykenek and Jessica walk up. And we learn about the upheaval spreading across the empire. Quote, a wildfire of rebellion was spreading through the empire. It would be put down, of course, but Leto would have a sorry empire to restore. End quote. So fascinating, right? We're, we're seeing the remnants of people loyal to different parties kind of flaring up. And we're seeing, yeah, no, naturally this stuff is going to die down. But for now, there's quite a bit of damage being done. Stilgar enters the room and is very kind of awkward and formal with Lady Jessica. Yeah. And it's clear he's still, like, thinking a lot about the fact that he fucking killed Duncan Idaho. <laughs> As he should be. As he should be! Stilgar! Come on! <laughs> His diss track was awful, but still, didn't deserve that. But no, Jessica doesn't hold it against him. She's like, you literally played into his hand. Like, he wanted you to do that. Of course, I don't hold that against you. But as a Fremen, he retreats to kind of formality as a way of kind of coping with these complicated feelings. He is skeptical about Leto too, and declares that Siegtober will not pay homage. He's basically lived through one Atreides Messiah and is not like super gung-ho to throw himself into another. Right. He's like... That shit was fucking wild. Did you see any of that? <laughs> We're going to do that again, really? Yeah. But throughout this chapter, it's also clear he's in denial a little bit, right? Like, 
he's been given so much evidence that Leto II, this shy Halud personified, may know what he's talking about, right? May have a bit of that prescience that has guided them thus far. And yet, he's just like stuck in this, well, I don't think that's going to be the case. There's some real serious boomer energy yeah. coming from him throughout this process. Very like fake news. I don't believe it. It's like, what <laughs> What are you basing your confidence off of? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, Walk me through yeah. that. But I do love this little moment between Tychonic and Stilgar because Stilgar is saying, well, listen, the kind of luscious, beautiful life that you're talking about is going to kill off Fremen because Fremen are hardened by battle and by, you know, opposition, things like that. And Ganim is like, no, 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 you're good. Don't, what are you talking about? Quote, will we not need soldiers and brave men to remove the occasional dissatisfaction? Why, mm. still, you and Tyke's brave companions will be hard-pressed to do the job. End quote. And very casually <laughs> indicates that under Leto's rule, the Sardaukar and Fremen, like Fideikin, will be working together. <laughs> Just very casually. Beyond the fact that we heard earlier in the book that the Fremen are probably not overly fond of Sardaukar presence on Arrakis anymore. Yeah. <laughs> to be like, yeah, Tychonic and Stilgar, naturally, going to work together. <laughs> Quote, Stilgar looked at the Sardaukar officer and a strange light of understanding passed between them. <laughs> End quote. Mm -hmm. Both of them are like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I don't want this to be a thing. Right. Their, their sort of bro-y camaraderie in these last two chapters is actually kind of sweet. It's cute. I like it. It reminds me again of Stilgar and, and Gurney, you know, and like... Yeah, exactly. That I don't like them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you will. <laughs> You'll be friends. Now, from the conversation, Faradin observes how Ganima and Jessica are basically playing off of each other very intentionally. Like, one will say one thing, the other one follows up, and then ping-ponging back and forth, right? Quote, Faradin, listening with the new awareness which Jessica had taught him, heard a set piece, a prepared performance between Ganima and her grandmother, end quote. <laughs> also fascinating because, like, Stilgar has done this, right? Like, didn't Stilgar and Paul do that in the Cave of Birds back in the first book? Yep, yep. But we could also gather from this that Jessica, by being kind of part of this little play, has bought into the Golden Path, or at least is sort of like, yeah, it's going to happen. Leto's in charge. Look at him. <laughs> I, I can't fucking stand up to him. Are you kidding me? Leto too's <laughs> here. He's doing what he wants. He's in charge. He's got this. Stilgar and Tychonic, on the other hand, are still a little bit unswayed. Stilgar's like, wait a second. This is a set piece. Tychonic's like, ah, I don't care what's happening. And both of them are still skeptical about all of this. I mean, ultimately, both are hesitant to sell their respective forces to this new Atreides messiah, right? Like, Tychonic, we saw Tychonic have resentment around his guy just being fed to the tigers willy-nilly. Like, he clearly cares about his Sardaukar. And, of course, Stilgar cares about his Fremen. The idea of either of them being like, yeah, I'm just going to hand them to you, child, is something they're both balking at, right? Right. Now, a key sticking point for Stilgar is the fate of the sandworms. He, again, very boomer, refuses to believe they'll die out in just two centuries. Ganima's like, no, 200 years, they're gone. 
And the chapter ends as Ganima tells him that, no, this is inevitable. But, hey, don't worry, quote, the worms will return after my brother goes into the sand, end quote. And, of course, everyone in the room went, fucking what? What? What are you you talking about? Yeah, very cryptic, what she said here. Yeah. But I also wanted to take a moment to share some of the details that we got from this chapter about the Golden Path and about what kind of the universe has to look forward to. Because while we're not told specifics, when we're not told a lot of things, we are told a couple of new things. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's laid out in a way that's a little bit more understandable. Right. So broadly, the Golden Path leans on, we're told, a kind of latent desire of most of the empire for a ruler like the pharaohs of ancient Terra, right? Ganema says everyone wants this, this pharaonic, the word I didn't know how to say out loud, <laughs> pharaoh-like ruler. And Jessica's like, yeah, I agree. That's what everyone wants. And whether they want that consciously or subconsciously, they agree. That's what they want. And this will come with, quote, a rich peace with abundant harvests, plentiful trade, a leveling of all except the golden ruler, end quote. Mm. So, yes, even playing field, everyone's equal except for God, except for the God dude. That guy's that guy's the golden ruler. He's great. Right. Now, if slash when people disagree with this new ruler, Plato will simply and easily, this is Leadership 101, quote, remove the occasional dissatisfaction, <laughs> end quote, oh, with so military force. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think this is a suggestion box. No, uh, this is no, no. This, this is where it feels very tyrannical. This is where it feels very authoritarian. Mm-hmm. So we're getting this sales pitch. It also has some deeply unsettling undercurrents, right? Like Muad'Dib with the drum skins of his enemies. Right. And all of it will lead to the end of Leto's empire in approximately 4,000 years, where his kind of life will end or he'll end. And that is where, we're told, the real kind of fruit of the golden path will ripen. Ganema tells us, quote, You think this is Kralizek now, but Kralizek is yet to come. And when it comes, humans will have renewed their memory of what it's like to be alive. The memory will persist as long as there's a single human living. We'll go through the crucible once more, still, and we'll come out of it. We always arise from our own ashes. Always. End quote. Ah, such a beautiful quote. It's so cool. I love this. And it also highlights, I think, the important role that Ganema and we'll find out Faradin and Leto are playing on this golden path in service of the golden path, which is such a long plan. We're talking thousands of years, such a long plan that for most people, they're going to think this is it, right? And this is the thing that we see all the time where people say, oh, this is the pinnacle of X, Y, and Z technology or like, oh yeah, you know, I always joke, we all played video games in like the 90s and the early aughts. And it's like, wow, this is as good as graphics are ever going to get. And it was like the PlayStation 1, everyone had potato heads. Yeah. <laughs> the average person runs the risk of looking at things with too short a scope because you might only live 
200 years in this Dune universe, and Leto's looking at 4,000 years. So Ganima's reminding us, you think that this is all about right here and now, but this is not the point. And actually, the point is not even the next 3,000, 4,000 years. The point is that when Kralizek happens at the end of my brother's empire, humans will have this thing, they'll like know what it means to be alive, and they will never forget truly living until all of them are dead. And yeah. we're never going to let that happen because we're always going to arise from our own ashes. It's such a cool idea. Yeah. And uh, so hard to wrap your mind around, yeah, right? totally. Like no one in this room is truly wrapping their mind around it. <laughs> Some people like Jessica have just accepted it, right? Like there's no fighting this. There's no fighting Leto. Right. Just go along. And other people like Stilgar and Tychonic are like, I don't fucking get it. And I refuse to believe it. Yeah. Jessica's still picturing her like beach on Kaladin. She's like, maybe I should just go have some more Mai Tais. <laughs> like, right. I'll actually retire this time. Hey, and Gurney's still alive. Great news. <laughs> Great news. All right. Let's do it, Leo. Yeah. I'm almost sad to say this, but we've reached the final chapter of this book. The final chapter? Oh, beautiful. Chapter 64. Mm. So at the start of this chapter, we're told about all of the flexing that Leto II has been doing to prove to the Fremen that he is a god. He's doing things like walking through fire unscathed. He's tossing around guild frigates yeah. to show off his strength. And all of these impossible feats that he's doing have been enough to convince all of the tribes of Leto's holiness. And delegates have been visiting to basically pay homage to Leto the god emperor of the universe. In the current scene, Jessica is looking down on these ceremonies from the spy hole behind the throne. Right. She has refused to attend any of these ceremonies. She is just observing from afar. Quote, her attention was caught by Faradin and the realization that both she and Faradin had been outmaneuvered. Of course, Leto and Ganima had anticipated the sisterhood. The twins could consult within themselves a host of Bene Gesserits greater than all now living in the Empire. End quote. Mm. Yeah. So Jessica has basically accepted the L. <laughs> yeah. Whatever plans she had with marrying Farada into Ganima and using him to control the throne for the Bene Gesserit, all of that has been thwarted by Leto and Ganima's planning, and she has bitterly accepted this defeat. She also thinks about her daughter and how that same access to that host of internal Bene Gesserit is what played a huge role in destroying Alia. Right. Yeah. Quote, the habits of generations had imprinted the fate of abomination upon her. Alia had known no hope. Of course, she'd succumbed. Right. End quote. Right. Yeah. And that line really hit me. Because it was the preconceived notions of all of these inner Bene Gesserit within Alia that sort of sealed her fate. How tragic is that? Yeah. None of the Bene Gesserit within her believed abomination could be overcome. So Alia didn't believe abomination could be overcome. And so she succumbed to it. There was no hope given to her. Well, and there weren't, there certainly weren't any external Bene Gesserit helping her. Right. She had to turn to those internal resources who were all yes. defeatists. Because fucking Jessica left her. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
And the only reason the twins were able to figure out how to overcome it is because of their mother and father. Yeah. Internal Chani, internal Paul acting as guides and guards against these inner voices is a huge reason why the twins didn't succumb to abomination in the same way that Alia did. Right. It's really poignant stuff. And for Jessica to come to this realization is powerful. Yeah. She's also considering how the twins proved in not one, but two ways that abomination could be overcome. Right. And that if she herself had perhaps explored some of these ways with her daughter, Alia's fate could have been different. Quote, they might have saved Alia, but without hope, nothing had been attempted until it was too late. Alia's water had been poured upon the sand. End quote. Uh, yeah. Tragic stuff. I mean, we've talked time and time again over the course of this book club series how tragic of a character Alia Trades is, and it's dawning on Jessica as well that she could have helped. She should have helped, and she didn't. And thus, she played a major role in sealing her daughter's tragic fate. Right. Also, an interesting side note, I think this is probably the same spy hole that Alia used to look down on Paul back in Messiah. Yeah. So just the fact that Jessica is standing in the same space that we often saw Alia back when she was younger adds to just the layers of this scene. Yeah. Just yeah. so tragic and so poignant for her to be in that same spot as her daughter. So much history to these spaces. Yeah, truly. Now, zooming down to what's going on in the throne room, Leto is sitting next to a jar of his father's water as Stilgar approaches to pledge his support. He is the final knave in today's ceremonies to pay homage. Fraden is also there sitting next to him in his newly appointed role as the royal scribe. <laughs> a bit of a downgrade from the emperor he was aiming for, but still an important role, I imagine. Well, maybe, I mean, yes, obviously, and they talk about that. But also, we saw Faradin like, I just want to go read books. Oh, totally. It's funny how it is a downgrade, but also kind of perfect for him. Yeah. It, it is the exact role he was meant to play in this. Yeah. Now, as Stilgar approaches and he and Leto converse, I found myself desperately hoping that Faradin was jotting down all the shade <laughs> that was being thrown back and forth yeah. between Leto and Stilgar, yeah. because... The two are basically handing gifts to each other. Stilgar hands over Gani's headband, and Leto turns and rips the hem of her robe and hands it back to Stilgar. And they're basically kind of throwing shade at each other. Right, right. Like, here's the headband of your sister that I protected when you disappeared. And he's like, well, here's the robe to remind you that uh, you didn't fucking protect her and I had to come in and save the day. <laughs> it's this almost funny, like, tense back and forth. In a scene where Stilgar is ostensibly supposed to be paying homage to the God Emperor. Right. It is clear from this conversation that Stilgar is still feeling defiant. But at this point, he's basically resigned himself to the inevitability of Leto II's rule. Quote, Stilgar swallowed, remembering the report of his Arifa. And he thought, once I thought of slaying him, now it's too late. End quote. Yeah. Man, remember the beginning of this book? Literally. The first chapter? Yeah. <laughs> literally first chapter, last chapter. Stilgar standing over the sleeping twins going, man, they might fucking change the whole galaxy. And I could just kill them right now. 
And now Leto's like, by the way, bro, I'm knife proof. So yeah. nice to meet you. Yeah. It's beautiful stuff. We've come full circle. Yeah. This is also the point at which I was like, feeling bad that Stilgar, our favorite Navy boy, was getting treated meanly. But he also did 100% fuck up. Like, <laughs> Ganema going, you cannot let this happen. And him going, whatever, child. Like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, totally. God damn it, Stilgar. So a bit of sass from Leto here is not the worst. And I'm sure if Stilgar were Nabe and someone under his control did something like that, he would give them no less than some, like, snark and sass. Maybe even a harsher punishment. Yeah. Maybe Leto's even being kind in this moment right but yeah, <laughs> yeah. right leto's not subjecting him to a six hour one-on-one <laughs> yeah listen you know just 30 minutes it'll be a quick meeting it'll be great six <laughs> hours later <laughs> now after a little bit of shade being thrown back and forth leto orders stilgar to read the inscription that is written on paul's jar the inscription says quote this water is the ultimate essence, a source of outward streaming creativity. Though motionless, this water is the means of all movement. End quote. And Stilgar finds himself awed by these words as he reads them aloud, but he can't exactly put a finger on why. What about these words is exactly speaking to him? Right. And Leto gives him sort of a long and windy philosophical answer that doesn't completely satisfy Stilgar's curiosity here. Right. Quote, Stilgar bowed his head. Mystical things always left him in turmoil. End quote. It's true. Yeah. And this really made me think back to Dune Messiah, where a very similar scene takes place where Paul and Alia, and this actually happens multiple times, but Paul and or Alia would use these like mystical gibberish, I am the... Messiah, and I can see past the mountains that you cannot even imagine, Stilgar, <laughs> right, right. as a way to sort of confuse and overwhelm him, right? To make sure that he wasn't questioning things too much as a way to control him. Obviously, they do that with the entire Imperium at large, but even with their friends and their subjects, they are forced to be sort of mystical in this way. Right. To keep them in line. This felt very similar to me. Where Leto is like, hey, read that thing. Let me give you a deeply philosophical and weird answer as to what that inscription means. And Stilgar sort of walking away and being like, uh, okay, I mean, I'm kind of confused, but this sounds godly and mystical. And he, it's just very clear that the poor guy has been out of his depth with these Atreides and they use that to their advantage. Right. It's also, I mean, it's, it's character writing on Stilgar's part because he's always described as like a tremendously practical guy. Like he is very rooted in like what can i do what's the next step like what action do i yeah, take yeah totally and so <laughs> this sort of like read the jar and then it's like a beautiful zinsuni poem and he's like yeah. uh, <laughs> wow what does it mean and leto's like i'm not going to tell you stilgar's like cool <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah. <laughs> right totally stilgar a pragmatist yeah. always has been totally. and th this mystical stuff as we're told here leaves him in turmoil it's all overwhelming now the ceremony wraps up stilgar leaves and leto turns his attention toward the royal scribe Pradhan himself 
And the topic of discussion is the Sardaukar. Faradin has yet to give Leto his Sardaukar, and Leto is here to convince him to do just that. Right. This is where Leto drops a couple of bombshells on us. And this first one made me stop in my tracks. (laughs) Leto reveals that he has, in fact, not overcome abomination. Yeah. At least not fully. Yeah. What he has instead done is formed a sort of agreement between himself and his inner lives. And to achieve this, he basically cut a deal with one of the more powerful inner lives to help him control the rest. Quote, I'm a community dominated by one who was ancient and surpassingly powerful. He fathered a dynasty which endured for 3,000 of our years. His name was Harum. End quote. Right. And that name might sound familiar because this is not the first time we've heard it. Harum was briefly mentioned earlier in the book when Leto was undergoing his spice trances. That was perhaps the first time Leto met Harum, and perhaps the start of their negotiations to cut this deal to help him manage those inner lives. Yeah. That's a big revelation. Yeah, I've seen conversations online, and it's true. There isn't really a conclusive answer here, whether or not Leto has become abomination. Yeah. Specifically, that he has given over the keys to his Honda to Harum, right? And it seems here, because he says, oh yeah, my sister and I both faced this challenge. She overcame it. I didn't. Right is saying, I succumbed to abomination. But we also know, later on, he says, I use Harum's cruelty that he used in his rule, right? Yep. I borrow from this quality of him. And he's also saying here, I'm a community, which is not the abomination we saw with Alia. Alia was not this group of other memories being kind of led by Baron. She was just Baron. And so... This is different. Yes. But <laughs> but we don't know how different. And at the end of the day, it's possible Leto is just abomination. And we just ignore it. And we just call him Leto because that's what he's, that he, he didn't really change that much, I guess. Or maybe he did. It's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is the abomination pro max with the dynamic <laughs> island. Like it. <laughs> dynamic island. <laughs> it's not the abomination that Alia underwent, clearly. And it's not exactly the abomination as defined by the Bene Gesserit that they fear so much. It's unprecedented. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to define. You know, you, you can't really put a label on what he's done because he's the first human being to have ever done it. Yeah, the keynote announcing this model of abomination was fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Steve Jobs. Drop the mic. Steve Jobs is back in Gola form. He knocked down the impenetrable doors protecting the auditorium. And as he walked I am the lion. And as he walked on the stage, he says, I have a regrettable task to perform or whatever. Yeah. It's a really interesting conversation and perhaps one we'll explore further in future episodes. Totally. But this yeah. Is he abomination? Isn't he abomination? What is he revealing here about himself? Yeah. Interesting stuff. Let's move on to the other bombshell that that he drops, because he then reveals that he actually is unable to father children because of the transformation that has taken place and will take place. 
over the next thousands of years. Right. But he intends to really lean into the whole pharaonic empire because he's going to marry his sister. Right. He is going to wed Ganema officially. And as we know, Fremen, very anti-incest, but he's not worried about it. They'll do what he wants. He's God. <laughs> yeah. This means, however, that the only way to actually continue the Atreides line is for Faradin to then sire children with Ganema. Right. Quote, as my mother was not wife, you will not be husband, Leto said, but perhaps there will be love and that will be enough. End quote. I love the symmetry there. I love that Jessica was not Duke Leto's wife, that Chani was not Paul Atreides' wife. Right. But these were the women that gave birth to the next generation. And in a similar way, Faradin will not be Ganima's husband, but he will be responsible for producing children. And then Jessica appears at his side and goes, history will call us wives. And Faradin's like, I don't want to be your wife. Can't history call me your husband? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's Faradin is naturally resistant to this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. imagine getting this as a sales pitch. Your instant reaction would be revulsion, probably. Right. And on top of all of this, Leto is also very clear about his intentions. He's like, I want you to have these kids because they're going to be part of my breeding program. I am taking over the breeding program and I'm going to run it for the next 4,000 years and create the most comprehensive breeding program that will give birth to the most powerful rulers humankind has ever seen. Yeah. And they will be your descendants. That'll be your children, right. Faradin. Yeah. Don't you want that? Like your descendants will rule. Yeah. Faradin's like, oh, okay. Right. It's it's a strong sales pitch, a weird one, right? <laughs> yeah. But a, a, a fairly strong one. His offer to Faradin, in short, is you give me the Sardaukar and I, quote, offer your descendants the Imperium. I offer you peace, mm. end quote. Yeah. And that's a damn good sales pitch. Like Faradin recognizes that Leto throughout this conversation hasn't used the voice, right? There's no coercion happening here outside of Leto appealing to Faradin's instincts and to Faradin's intellect. It's clear to everyone by this point that Leto's universe is coming, right? There's no stopping this god from creating the universe he intends. And what he's offering to Faradin and to his descendants is a life of comfort and peace and a life where a future is guaranteed. We know that these things are not guaranteed for everyone in Leto's empire. He is giving Faradin the option to accept those things right. for himself and for his children. So Faradin reluctantly agrees to this deal. But there's a caveat. He does declare that he will record up, I mean, resist <laughs> yeah. Leto II for the rest of his life. And of course, Leto saw this coming. He saw everything coming. He expects Faradin to do just that and even bestows a new name upon the royal scribe, Hark Elada, which means breaking of the habit in Fremen. What? And this is our third bombshell in this final fucking chapter. This one not from Leto, but from Frank Herbert himself. Yeah. All of these chapter excerpts that we have been reading throughout this book, many of them have been from some guy named Harkela Da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we know who that is. Uh. It's writings, historical writings from the royal scribe himself, Farad and Carino. The fucking gall 
to pull this whole because again you read all of dune and you keep seeing you know written by irulan in like diaries of muad'dib or like whatever irulan 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 you barely meet irulan you meet her like twice you see her at the end of the book and you go oh interesting so she's not gonna she's not she is wife but not she's never gonna lay with him okay i guess she becomes a historian because of this this and this okay interesting yeah. The fucking gall of Frank to be like, it's a Carino again. <laughs> it's the same thing, but this time he used a pen name and fucking got us. Because I also yeah. will say, as a kind of behind the scenes comment, we we did our Hark El Harba uh, episode, which is about like the Shakespeare of the Dune universe. I thought that was Hark El Alda. Like I thought it was the same person <laughs> until I was writing that script. Because it's just, I don't know. I didn't know who Hark al-Ada was because I missed this somehow. It's just wild. Yeah. It's such a great little reveal that this whole time we've been reading words written by Faradin as we're like hanging out with this swanky Carino prince going, I wonder if he's going to take over the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler, you just read one of his diary entries. He did not. <laughs> he did not. Ah. Uh. <laughs> So good. Such a great reveal yeah. at the end of the book here. Okay, let's wrap up. This chapter ends as Leto stands up and heads out to leave. But before he does, he walks over to Ganima and stands back to back with her and turns to Faradin and says, quote, Remember that, cousin, when you're face to face with my Ganima. Remember that when you whisper of love and soft things when you are most tempted by the habits of my peace and my contentment, your back will remain exposed. End quote. Holy fuck. Yeah, yeah. When the when Leto II, the god emperor, is threatening you. The implication here, from my understanding, is that he and Ganima will always have each other's backs. They are twins, they are siblings, they are Atreides. They will never be exposed as long as the other one lives. But Faradin, he will be. No matter how much love and affection may grow between Faradin and Ganima as they raise their children and live their lives, it will always be Leto and Ganima who have each other's back. Right. I also see it as Faradin is someone born out of endless politicking and endless aspirations for like arresting control. And it's Leto's way of like very early on setting expectations going like listen i'm giving you a mate i'm giving you like a concubine effectively and you will likely grow to love one another and like have peace with one another even at your most comfortable when you might be tempted to revert back to like maybe i can like work something out with ganima and take the throne for myself your back is exposed my guy you are vulnerable forever yeah and just remember that. Now have a great life. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Walks out of the room. <laughs> it's brutal stuff. It's a hint at what Leto's rule may be like, right? You can imagine anyone who interacts with him gets this sort <laughs> yeah. of peace from one hand and a fucking slap from the other. That's what interacting with Leto too will be like, I'm sure. He has an open bar. He's like, regardless of how many drinks you have, regardless of how many delicious things you've eaten, your back is always exposed. People are like, all right, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. 
At least he says it quickly. It's not like Stilgar who's <laughs> still talking. Yeah, true, true. Okay, let's round out this chapter. This book and this chapter end as Ganema takes Faradin's hand and says these final fateful words. Quote, One of us had to accept the agony, she said, and he was always the stronger. End quote. In reference to her brother, Leto. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. Children of Dune, baby! Children of Dune, baby! What a, what a great book. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's so much. I, you know, it's funny because like a number of Frank's books are like this where it's slow and meticulous and it builds up these like days and you're just with characters for every little beat of the way. And then like halfway, I've, I've seen jokes and memes about him just getting bored and like wanting to get the story done. <laughs> and the number of time jumps we had in those last like 200 pages. Yeah, for real. And then the, the speed with which it was like, also off page, Gurney stole an ornithopter and escaped the smugglers. And also, Buir Argarvez was killed. And also, all this shit's happening completely off page. But at the same time, the like number of layers and the poignancy of the moments that are then delivered to us in those final chapters is so vibrant and intense and almost overwhelming. Yeah. It's a fascinating experience, personally, as a reader to like read one of these books because again you get into this like rhythm and then it gets completely thrown off at that last third but also spectacular and beautiful and so many fantastic quotes that are better than fears the mind killer uh, so many so many. your back will be exposed your back will be exposed get that tattooed on your ass folks <laughs> just exposed on the back yeah people are like wow i can see the word exposed get it get it yeah Anyway, so that's Children of Dune. Oh, my gosh. It is. Yeah, we've done it. And look, we got one more episode left to go. We'll be wrapping up this book club series with one last mailbag episode. So, dear listener, now's the time. Now's the time to send us your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your memes, your deeply personal diary entries, <laughs> all of it. Send it to gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com so that we can include it in the final episode of this Children of Dune series. Yeah. And to be clear, we welcome all kinds of questions. Serious, silly, outlandish, off-topic, mathematical, rhetorical, <laughs> anything you want to send. Yeah. Podcast at gmail.com is the place to send all your thoughts. It's true. And they don't have to be Dune-related. We're always happy to field non-Dune-related questions. Yeah. We will audit the correct ones for the, the episode. I'll also point out, we've made multiple mentions to how we want to see this adapted to film. I will point out, now that we have all officially finished this book, the sci-fi series did a, an adaptation of this. Right. There is a Children of Dune miniseries that we actually will be watching and talking about in the future. Yes. This might be a good time to start hunting down a copy so that when we go into our like watch-along commentary thing that you... Uh, you can follow along with us and know what we're talking about. For sure. That'll be coming up next. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> the book clubs always like are interesting to me because I, I like our deep dive episodes. We always end on some raucous joke and then the book clubs just kind of like, end. <laughs> it's like, right. 
And here's your homework because we always have to assign homework at the end of a yeah, book club exactly. episode. Like, do do this next. Right. It'll be twenty percent of your final grade. <laughs> the questions you send to us will be ninety percent of your final grade. <laughs> well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. We're told that there is a group of Ixian women who have dedicated this dance. I almost said dance. <laughs> Why would <laughs> I say dance? dance? <laughs> it's dance. suddenly English. <laughs> oh, yes. Ixian women have dedicated their dance to Alia. Dance. Dance. <laughs>